Well, if uh, you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and we're going to be studying verses 8 through 20. Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through 20. It says this, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. The high official is watched by a higher and the high official and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil, that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all the days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting to eat is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him for his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power, to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with a joy in his heart. Well, there is a, a famous Renaissance painting called The Moneylender and His Wife. And it illustrates the choice that confronts all of us between God and money. Now, in, in this painting, you'll see a moneylender, and he is, he is sitting at home, he's, he's at the table, and before him there's a scale, and there's also a pile of money. And the moneylender is carefully and fastidiously assessing the value of, of one single coin. And next to him, there's a woman. Seated next to him is his wife, and she has before her a Bible that is open. And she is, in fact, doing her devotions. But she's distracted. Because she has moved her gaze away from the word of God and begins to look at this coin that her husband has in his hand. Now what this painting illustrates is how easy it is for us to become distracted away from worship to the things of this world. And all of us feel this tension. Don't we also struggle with what 
Kohelis says in verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. See, this is the problem that all of us face. Where is it that we find our satisfaction? If you are seeking to be fulfilled with the things of the world, you will never find satisfaction. Because how much is enough? Well, in our preceding section uh, that we had looked at in verses 1 through 7, we saw the care that we would need to take as we enter into the worship of God. In verse 1, it had said, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And so when we come to worship, uh, we're to do so with great care. We're, we're to guard our steps, as it were. With, we're to come with reverence and awe. We're to enter worship with ears that are ready to hear and with lips that are slow to speak and with hearts ready to perform that which we have promised. And when we worship, we're to do, do so as God has prescribed for us. And so there's a, a holy seriousness in worship. But the problem is, again, that we're often distracted and unprepared. Just like uh, the money lender's wife, as she's distracted by the coin that he has in his hand. Maybe there are times where you would rather surf the internet or check what's going on on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, uh, whatever it is that we do today. We'd rather sometimes do that than listen to God's word. And so this is a, this is a spiritual battle that we're talking about. And it's a spiritual battle in which Solomon of Ecclesiastes wants to help us to win by showing us again the vanity of the things of the world. Namely, here he uses the example of money. But before he goes into that, he begins with injustice, which then leads us to this discussion of money. So if you look again at verse 8, it says, If you see in the province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. Now, why is it that, that, why is it that Kohelet tells us not to be amazed or not to be surprised by oppression? Why should oppression not surprise us? And what is this oppression that he is speaking about? Well, one of the reasons we shouldn't be amazed is that oppression is a reality of life. Uh, throughout the history of the world, the reality is this, poor people get oppressed the most. Whether it is in a communistic system where the state controls the means of production or in a capitalistic system where the profits are pursued without regard for people. Either way, it tends to be the case that poor people end up, by and large, to get the raw end of the deal. Now, this has always been the case in every economic system you can come up with. And so there are, there are of course, some systems that are better than others when it comes to economics. We're not going to get into that. But the fact is, none of them really work because of sin. You see, sin is at the root of all uh, of our systems. And sin is what brings about oppression and a violation of justice. Even our own system of government only works really when we have a benevolent people, a God-fearing people. Sin destroys all of our 
efforts. And oppression of people comes about because of the fallen nature of human beings. Now, of course, this is in no way to excuse unrighteousness. We're, we're not, in Kohelet is certainly not saying, well, you know, like, that's the way it is, so, you know, shrug our shoulders and say, oh, well, that's, that's not what he's getting at. But simply this, we're to recognize the reality of living in a fallen world. Sinners are going to sin. The powerful are going to oppress the powerless. This is why Lord Acton's warned in 1887 that power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. This truism applies to individuals, to institutions, to governments, and is as applicable as it is as today as it was in the 19th century and in the days of Solomon. And so this is what Solomon is saying. There is an oppression of the poor. There is a violation of righteousness. There is a violation of justice. And he says, don't be amazed by this. We shouldn't be surprised when sinners sin. We shouldn't be shocked so in here, here's what he also isn't saying. He isn't saying, so go protest and do sit-ins. He, he's not saying, like, go march on Jerusalem until, you know, the powers that be change. What he does say is, do not be amazed at the matter. Because this is what wretched sinners do. But... There is glimmers here, right? Because he says, but there are higher powers. Even that high official who oppresses still has someone above him. And yet, even above them, there's more. You see, there is accountability. Now, the, the verse says this, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. Now, how we can understand this verse centers around how we should understand the word watched. The high, for the higher official is watched by a higher. Now, there's one sense in which we could say that the official is, one official is looking over the shoulder of another official. They're, they're being watched. They're seeing what they're doing and, and kind of giving some accountability to them. In this case, you would think that this higher official would be a check on injustice. That's one way we could understand this. But the problem is that this also could be a way of taking advantage of those who are below them. So another way that we could think about this is what we might in our day call the good old boys network. Right? You all know what I mean by that where everyone is looking out for everyone else as they take advantage of other people. Like, hey, listen, we're all taking advantage of people, so let's just all kind of get on the same team, right? We're all going to kind of watch each other's back so we can go oppress these people over here. That's also a little bit of the idea that could be here. It's not clear. This, this kind of cronyism creates a political and social machine that leaves poor and ordinary people on the outside looking in. You, you have the, the haves and the haves not. You have the powerful and the powerless. You have the oppressors and you have the oppressed. But here's the thing. 
Either way we, want, we understand this, there is still always a higher authority, right? Romans 13.1 says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So no matter the system, whether one is looking over his shoulder to the next level of oppression, whether he's, there's some sort of good old boys network of cronyism, whatever it is, eventually you run out of authorities who are oppressing. Because all authority ultimately comes from God. And at the top level of every organizational chart is the triune God. God is sovereign over all that takes place. And so even when uh, there are systems where it looks like the oppressed will be nothing but oppressed, and where is the accountability? There is accountability with God. And so what Solomon is saying in verse 8 is that there are levels of authority in which sin exists. And this shouldn't come as any surprise to us. It shouldn't surprise us that people are taking advantage of other people, that there's oppression, that there is injustice. These things shouldn't, we shouldn't watch the news and say like, oh, I can't believe this. This is unbelievable. I mean, there's a sense of which it kind of is, right? But there's another sense of which like, yeah, this is life under the sun. Like this is what sinners do. It shouldn't amaze us. There are so many different levels and kinds of injustice that we shouldn't be necessarily surprised by it. And then, and then he, uh, he, he says something interesting in verse 9. And, and your, your Bible might even have a note uh, that says something like, uh, th- this verse is unclear. The Hebrew here is unclear. So I'll do the best I can to be unclear about the meaning of this. <laughs> but it says this, but this is gain for land in every way a king committed to cultivated fields. So what's kind of odd is uh, it says this, but in the context, like we just talked about oppression and not being surprised, but then now we're talking about the king and like the cultivation of lands. There's a few different ways this could be understood. What does this, first of all, what does this mean for a king to be committed to cultivated Lands And what does this have to do with, uh, with people being oppre- oppressed in the province? Well, you know, what I'll do is I'll present what are a couple possibilities, since it is unclear, uh, and then you could, ta- you could pay your quarter and take your pick. Okay? So a good king is one who wants to see his people prospering. A good king is good for the people. So no one is served well when there is corruption that does not allow people to flourish. A a godly king will protect and encourage his people so that they can be successful. And so one way that a king deals with oppression and encourages his people is to keep them busy cultivating the fields and being productive. And, And by the way, part of this also is by dealing with the corruption. So you have those higher officials, and as the king sees oppression, he removes these, these impediments to cultivated fields, to, to production, right? That's one way that we could understand this verse. Because when people are being productive, they're not causing trouble. But there is another possible interpretation 
which would also, and by the way, you can kind of see perhaps uh, that, th that ends up being a little bit in line with the ESV, the way the ESV translated it is, lends itself to that interpretation. The King James, though, actually went a little bit different direction with this, and so I'll give, it, I'll give this to you. This is another way you can interpret this. They translate this way, Moreover, the prophet of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. So in this interpretation or this understanding, everyone is taking advantage from the low officials all the way up to the king. In other words, the, the oppression just sort of rolls downhill. Okay? That's kind of the idea. So even the king himself is oppressing the people by taking all the prophets from the masses. In this reading, the king is not part of the solution. In fact, he is actually a big part of the problem. He is not keeping everyone productive and flourishing, but is in fact creating much of the problem. He's oppressing everyone down the line as he lines his own pockets at the expense of those who are below him. And so when we think about injustice in the world, we tend to think of corruption at every level of government. And this, is, this could be what Solomon is talking about. Which is interesting, because who's Solomon? He's the king. It's interesting if he's actually even talking about himself here. If we understand it this way, though, it means that at this point... Solomon is not offering any solutions. In fact, all he's doing is presenting more problems. So you can see is the, with this particular verse, you're just going to have to pay your quarter and take your pick because it's, it's hard to know exactly what's being said here. Ultimately, the point ends up the same, in the same place. Um, so there is a problem, though, that can go all the way back to the king's throne where there's oppression. And in this understanding, even the king is hurting his own people for his own gain. And by the way, that understanding, though, lends itself a little bit better, I think, to what it says in verse 10. Right? So this is where oppression and lining your own pockets lends itself to this, where it says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. If you have an oppress a, a king who's oppressing all the way down the line, he's probably doing that because he loves something more than his own people. He loves riches. But here's the problem. There's no satisfaction to be found in that because how much is enough? Right? You know, so we, we do this, right? We think, oh, if I only had this much money, right, then all my problems would be solved. So you, maybe you're, you're, you're really good at savings. You start saving, you get that amount of money, you're like, oh. you know, if I only had this, then, then all my problems, I'll have no problems anymore. Or maybe it's that thing. You know, if I only had that, that widget, or you know, whatever it is, if I only had that, all my problems would be solved. But when you get that, oh, no, 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 there's something else I need. He loves his wealth with his income. This is vanity. So those who use their power to gain more and more and more and more are, are just never satisfied. And so what is true for kings and for governors and for leaders is also true for you and me. You see, we cannot find our satisfaction in the things of this world. 
And why is that? Why is it that these things never satisfy us? What, what, what does the Bible say about the love of money? Well, what does it say in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10? Anybody know, know that? For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by the way, the money itself isn't the problem, is it? It's the love of it. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. You know, there are some who, who strive and crave so much for the things of this world, for money, that they wander away from faith. In fact, he even goes on to say, and pierce themselves with many pangs. Uh, it's painful. Hebrews 13.5 says this, Keep your life free from love of money. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The writer of Hebrews frames it this way. You know, there's money. Don't love that. Be content. Because the Lord has said, I will not leave you or forsake you. So, okay. Money will leave you and forsake you. And by the way, you know, Solomon kind of goes into that. The Lord will not leave you or forsake you. Where do you want to go with this? Right? It seems so simple, and yet, is this not the spiritual struggle that we all, all have? Well, Solomon also gives us some more commentary on this. Verse 11, when, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has the owner but to see them with his eyes? See, here's the thing. The more that you acquire, the more that there is to take from you. When goods increase, those who eat them increase. When you make more money, guess who wants more taxes? Right? The government. When you make more money, guess who wants a bigger inheritance? Your children. When you make more money, guess who wants to steal it from you? The thief and the swindler. And when you make more money... There's always somebody more powerful who will try to oppress you. You see, the problem is not the money. The problem is not possessions. The problem is our heart attitude towards them. We, we should be content with what we have. Because there is a point where you will no longer have it. You might end up with less. And what you do gain, do so honestly. This is what Solomon means in verse 12, where he says, Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. You see, if you work hard, you gain honestly, whether you are blessed with an abundance or you have very little, guess what? You're going to sleep well at night. Because it's not about what you've acquired. You know, and, and in fact, if you've done so honestly, you have one less reason to look over your shoulder. You didn't do this by oppression, so you're not, somebody's not gunning for you, right? But for the oppressor, it's a different story. His, full, his stomach is full, but it's full at someone else's expense, and that someone might be wanting to get it back, right? Dishonest gain has practical implications, not only is it sinful and wicked, but it is also worrisome. And so Kohelet has been talking about the vanity of acquiring wealth 
particularly through oppression and injustice. And then in verses 13 and 14, he talks about the vanity of losing it. Remember we said, you know, you can, you can gather all this together, but eventually you're going to lose it. Well, he tells the story of why, this is, why the gain of money, why living for money is meaningless. And it's because it is here today and gone tomorrow. In fact, the preacher calls this a grievous evil. It will make one sick to their stomach to think about. In verse 13, it says, There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Martin Luther, in, in commenting on this passage, said that God permits the very riches in which people trust to bring about the ruin of those who own them. Sometimes God does that. And so the preacher is telling us a story. He tells the story of a wealthy man who tries to hoard his wealth, but then he loses it all in a risky investment. And here's the thing. People lose money all the time, right? They, they lose money in the stock market. They lose money in some other venture. You know, someone comes along and says, hey, I've got this, you know, fail-safe way that you're going to make so much money, you know, just, you know, give me 10 grand and you, you'll, you'll be set for life, right? By the way, anybody tells you that, you should run. Just as a side note. Too good to be true. Too good to be true. That's right. Too good to be true. Um, but here's, that's, that's what happens, right? Here's a risky, here's a risky event, venture, right? You know, he, so he invests in this, loses everything. People lose money in these things all the time. In those days, you might have a, a, a risky venture where the ship could go down at sea. Or the camel train was attacked and everything was lost. Or... Uh, there could be a variety of other ways that it could have been lost. But whatever the reason is, however it is, this man lost all of his money. And the result is, he has nothing left. He's got a son, in fact. He wants to leave an inheritance to his son, but he can't because he's got nothing left. And so just as he came into the world naked and with nothing, this is how he is to leave the world with nothing says in verse 15. And so the evil in this is that the man's trust was in worldly possessions and not in the Lord. The great evil isn't that he lost everything. He was quite unwise, perhaps. But the great evil really was where his trust was. His trust was not in the Lord. And so verse 17 indicates that he was left angry and frustrated because he wants a game, right? So he doesn't, he doesn't lose, the, he doesn't get ruined and say like, oh, now I get it. I should have been trusting the Lord. Like, no, he gets mad. He's angry. He's frustrated. He wants it still. I want it. I want what I had, and I still want what I was, was supposed to really get. He wants and he can't, he wants gain, but he cannot get it. 
The very riches which he had been trusting in has led to his own ruin. Now when we, when we hear the story of an angry old man who has lost all because of misplaced affections, we cannot help but think there must be a better way to live, right? That's, that's, we, we should be driven to thinking like, oh yeah, that's not the road I should go down. The Bible tells us not to put our hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, to put our, but to put our hope in God, who richly provides with us with everything for our enjoyment. In fact, Ecclesiastes puts it this way in verses 18 and 19. Listen. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun for the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. Now, some scholars, as they look at these verses, these verses are so completely contrary to what has already been said. And so there are some who want to think that he's being sarcastic or cynical in some way. But, but is he? Is he just being cynical? Is he saying that life is so meaningless, there is no point to life, that the only thing that there is to do is to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die? Is that, is that what he's saying? Is he being cynical? Or is he trying to give us a different, different vision for life? See, one vision for life has humanity chasing after all the world has to offer. What Solomon has demonstrated is that this is vanity. This is chasing after the wind. You never know what might happen. And and we saw earlier, we we might get wealth for a while, but then it might be taken from us. It might be stolen. We might make poor investment choices. Either way, you and I are really never far from the poorhouse. I mean, any number of things can happen. Our hope, however, ought not to be in money. The other vision of life has us trusting in God and enjoying his good gifts. In fact, he ends this section, verse 20, with this, For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. You see, when we focus our gaze upon the Lord and upon his word, we we are not going to be distracted by the riches of this world. Oh, we may have possessions, but we, we hold them loosely, knowing that they could be here today and gone tomorrow. In fact, they're not even ours to begin with. We're just stewards. And so we can enjoy what God gives us, and when he takes it away, we're content with whatever it is the Lord has provided us with. When we gaze upon God and his word, we're not distracted by the world, and we will have a better vision for life, we will be able to enjoy the things we are given because we're okay with the fact that they're going to be eventually taken away. Because these are not the, where our hope is found. 
Our, our hope is not found in uh, whether we, you know, what kind of house we have and what kind of car we drive and how much money we have in the bank. Our joy is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and when, when, when we gaze upon the Lord in this way, we'll be so busy being joyful in the Lord that we won't, be, we won't actually find ourselves wasting our life chasing after things which have no real value anyway. And by the way, your period, the period of time you're on this earth is short as it is. And so what we do have, we can enjoy because it is a gift from God. Well, consider 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. This is what Paul instructs Timothy. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul is essentially saying the same thing as Solomon, right? Don't trust in your riches. Don't trust in what you have. Trust in the Lord who provides you with good gifts to enjoy. And with what we do have, we should be rich in good works. We should share generously. We should do good. And we should store up heavenly treasure. We should look to that which is truly life. You see, there's a real joy that God gives us. He gives us good gifts in life. The answer is, is not that money or possessions are evil. So, so don't hear that from the lesson today. It is that the love of this is at the root of all kinds of evil. There are many ways that a person can lose their property. But Romans 8, 38 and 39 says this, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, you see the message that the scriptures present to us? Your possessions aren't going to be taken from you, either by thieves or swindlers, bad ventures, uh, you know, oppression, you know, on and on, or... Here's the thing. Guarantee. You might say, I'm, I'm getting past all those. I'll pay my taxes, but I still got. Guess what's going to happen? You're going to die. Yep. You're going to die. Now, you can have them go ahead and put all the money in the casket with you. But it's still going to be there. Not doing anything for you in heaven. Right? You can't take it with you. And by the way, you don't want to. Because here you're losing everything. Here you're gaining everything in the Lord. And, and, and can anybody take that from you? Can anybody take you the greatest of gifts? 
the greatest of joy, the greatest possessions. What does Paul say? Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I ask you, Christian, where's your hope? What are you hoping in? You and I, in Christ, have surety. We can lose all that the world has to offer us, and yet we have still the joy in the Lord because our hope is not found in the things of this world. Those are good gifts that God blesses us with. Those are things that he's given us to enjoy. Have the right attitude towards those things, though, because that's not where your hope is found. Enjoy the good gifts, but place your hope in the Lord. Questions or comments? That reminds me of, I think it's in Philippians 4, a peace that passes understanding. Mm. We all understand the peace that we understand. When there's money in the bank and when everyone's healthy and all that. Is Lord. Other comments or questions? Usually good for some, at least one comment or question. <laughs> Either I covered it so well that you have no questions, or I'm so confusing you're like, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> All right, well, let's pray, and then if you have questions afterwards, you can certainly ask. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we do thank you for your every blessing. We thank you for, first and foremost, for the eternal life that we have through Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for the peace which passes all understanding. We thank you for your care for us, for the good gifts that you give to us. There are some in this room who you have blessed with much and others with less. But Lord, help us all to be content. And also help us to be generous, each to one another. Father, we thank you for the good gifts, but we hold them very loosely, knowing that all, all will be taken, for we are but stewards of what you have given. But help us to keep our gaze upon the Lord. Help us to not be distracted by mammon. But let our gaze be on who you are and on your word. Father, we ask that you would uh, prepare our hearts now as we will be entering into a time of worship. We pray that Jesus would be glorified. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.